This series, this whole study that we're now well into, we're finishing up chapter two. It's kind of amazing how fast this is going. Uh, We're focusing on one true gospel. One true gospel. There are many competing worldviews, many competing ideas, many gospels out there that are presented to us uh, and we're faced throughout the week. All week long, we're confronted with different versions of the gospel. And last week, Nikolai, he looked at this beginning of this chapter and what Paul calls man's gospel. Man's gospel. It's, it's legalism, essentially. And from the very beginning, we find out that way at the beginning, this is AD 50 probably, this is shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, way at the beginning, there were false gospels being taught. Already there's being false gospels. There's distortions of the gospel. I think we would be wise to think that we are not immune to them. We'd be wise to take them to heart. The idea of last week's passage, looking at man's gospel, specifically is looking at legalism, or the idea of being and having right behavior with wrong beliefs. Getting your behavior and your act right, but your beliefs aren't right. If only I can live right or be a good person, I could work harder, try harder, then I can earn God's favor. That's, that's man's gospel. Many believe this gospel, that if you only could perform well enough, God would show favor to you. He'd be pleased with you. And Paul is abundantly clear. I don't think he could be more clear that there is nothing you can do to earn God's pleasure over your life. It is only by the work of Jesus, it is only by grace that you can possibly experience God's favor and pleasure over your life. But this presents all sorts of problems for us. This this confronts us with a ton of problems. We don't like, I don't like to not be able to earn things. I'm an American, this is America, we work hard and achieve good things. If you try hard enough, you can make anything happen. It's the American way. Work hard, you can achieve the American dream. We assume that God functions very much like that. That if you want to be in the pleasure of God, if you want God to be okay with you, you want to be righteous, you work harder, you make yourself right, you do good, do good deeds, and and he'll be happy with you. The flip side of that coin, and I think a lot of people fall into this as well, is that we take grace as this passive permission to go on living however you want to live. That there's no demand on your life, you just keep doing you. Unfortunately, I think many people who have grown up in the church or have believed in a gospel that says essentially this, you're a sinner, you're going to a really, really bad place when you die, Jesus is kind of like Superman, he will save you, say this prayer, do good, and you'll go to a good place. That's kind of the gospel that's presented 
most often, or a lot of people have grown up with. Unfortunately, that's not the gospel. It's not even close to the gospel. It's not even close. My prayer is that as we go through this book of Galatians, as we spend time studying the gospel and what it is and what counterfeits are, that we would be so confident in the gospel, so consumed with the gospel, that that it's the native thing, like Elise was talking about, that comes out when we're in conversation. That it's the natural thing that comes out. So let's look at our passage tonight. Last week, legalism, right behavior, wrong beliefs. This week, it looks a little bit different, what Paul's dealing with. It's almost the opposite problem. Yet still very, very real and present in our churches today. What Paul's dealing with in this first part tonight is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is to claim or to have right beliefs but wrong behavior. You, You believe right but you, your, your actions don't line up with what you believe. You believe in the gospel. You, you mentally say, oh, yeah, that's, that's true. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. But your, your lifestyle doesn't match up with that. Let's read this section uh, and get into this tonight. I mean, we just read it, but maybe for the sake of time I won't read all of it. But this is one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament. You have a, an apostle publicly confronting another apostle. You have Paul, Paul the apostle, confronting publicly Peter the apostle. The same Peter who like was with Jesus, that same Peter. You have the apostle Paul calling him out publicly and confronting him. This is really good for us to see, by the way, that there's like... There's healthy conflict that's happening within the church and being resolved, even in a public fashion, public forum. Um, I think we could use more of this probably. So just jumping in, verse 11. When Cephas, that's, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul, okay. <laughs> He opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Some background here will help us understand what's going on. The church in Antioch, which is where Paul's talking about that this happened, uh, was predominantly Gentile. It was predominantly not Jewish. When Peter came to that church, he began to eat and to spend time with the believers there. He began to spend time with them uh, in their houses and to have fellowship with them. And in our world, that might not seem like a big deal. Like you show up at a church, you're a missionary, you sit down and you have, have dinner with people. But for these guys in that century, in that time, that was a very big deal. For centuries, like going back to what we looked at in the Daniel series and the post-Daniel the Jews had very intentionally separated themselves. They were known for their strict 
dietary laws, their separation from the Gentiles. Under the Old Testament law and the interpretation of those laws, there were dietary restrictions and rules that were intended to keep the Jewish people from intermingling with the Gentiles. The goal was to keep them from being corrupted by idolatry and by immorality. These dietary laws, these rules, made eating with Gentiles particularly hard. Because even sitting down at the table, when the Gentiles are eating pork or shellfish or certain non-kosher food, would cause you to be unclean. Would be seen as unclean. Culturally, table fellowship was a bigger deal than it is for us. It was a much bigger deal. It was more than just inviting somebody over for a meal or going to a restaurant. It was a sign of acceptance and approval of that person and therefore, by extension, their lifestyle. So when you invited somebody into your house, you were accepting them wholesale. That's why the Jewish religious leaders, when Jesus was doing his ministry, they were astonished. Remember in in Mark, we looked at this. They were astonished to see that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. They were blown away. They confronted him like, why are you doing this? What's odd is that Peter was with Jesus when Jesus dealt with those religious accusations. Why are you eating with sinners? We know from Acts 10 that we're going to look at here in a second that Peter still very much practiced the Jewish dietary laws. He didn't ever let that go. And we should look at Acts 10 because it sets the context. It puts some some light on this passage that Paul's dealing with. So if you can turn there, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we meet a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. And he has this vision of an angel that tells him to send for Peter and have him come to his house. It's a Gentile, a centurion, uh, and he sends for Peter. Meanwhile, Peter also has a vision, and that's what we have recorded in Acts chapter 10. So let's read this real quick, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that's the people sent from Cornelius, Peter went up to the housetop, about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by the four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter objects. And then the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. It's going to be really important, that line. What God has called clean, 
do not call common. This happened three times. Peter was hard-headed. We know that about Peter. This vision had to happen three times for it to sink in. And then the thing was taken at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, it's understandable, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is, what is the reason of your coming? So Peter returns with them. He goes with them to see Cornelius, the centurion. And he's invited into Cornelius' house to have table fellowship. We're going to jump down. Let's look at uh, verse 26. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. So Cornelius falls down to worship him. Verse 27. Uh, and as they talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter's very much dealing with this conflict in his heart. He grew up with the tradition that this is not okay. You don't go and associate with these people. But God had confronted that very clearly. And so here he is saying, God told me I can't call you common or unclean. So here I am. So when he was sent for, he came without any, any objections. I'm going to jump down here. And essentially what happens, Cornelius confesses Jesus, becomes a believer. In verse 34, it says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right in it is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. After this vision, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And then Acts 10.44, which is a lot of scripture, uh, tells us the result. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. So the Jewish people who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on those dirty, unclean Gentiles. That's you and I, by the way. 
For they were hearing them all, them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. This had massive, massive implications on what happens with the remainder of church history. What happened in this scenario with Peter. But not everybody was pleased. If you continue into Acts 11, Acts 11, the apostles, as Peter returns, the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Judaizers that we were looking at here in Galatians, They criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? And Peter began to explain to them in this order, and he tells the story. You ate with them, Peter? You had fellowship with them? Peter had to explain. He tells them, that they had believed in the Lord and they had placed their trust in him, and these Gentiles had also received the Holy Spirit. God had indwelt them in the same way he had indwelt those of the Jewish party. The same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the, the same Spirit that was poured out on them filled these Gentile believers and now there's a different reaction if you look at Acts 11:18. When they had heard these things, they fell silent. You can't you can't do anything. You can't say anything. God did something mind-blowing. They glorified God saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life." You have to have that context, that background knowledge, to really understand why Paul is so ticked with Peter in Galatians. Because in Galatians 2, Paul says Peter used to have table fellowship with Gentiles. He used to eat with them. But because he feared the circumcision party, he had apparently stopped. He was back to separating himself from them. Paul would have none of it. This is the same Peter who God used to initially bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The same Peter that had sat with Jesus and heard Jesus condemned for eating with sinners. The same Peter. And what's worse, Peter was obviously very influential. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Others were following his lead. And they were beginning to separate themselves. Even Barnabas, who had helped start the church in Antioch, was now separating himself. It was contagious. 
And Paul says that Peter was not keeping in step with the gospel. Keeping in step, that's, that's an important phrase there. That Peter was not keeping in step with the gospel. He was deviating from the way of Christ. Peter knew the gospel, clearly. He, he wrote books of the Bible. Peter knew the gospel. But Paul says that by his actions, he was not matching up. He was not in agreement with that that he believed and that he preached. He was acting like a hypocrite. And so Paul calls him out publicly. He confronts him publicly. This should remind us of something in Jesus' ministry. Who did Jesus notoriously call hypocrites? The Pharisees. Many times, he called them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. They looked clean on the outside. They presented a clean image, but on the inside, it was only death and decay. They were whitewashed tombs. That's the same thing that Paul is calling Peter. He's, it's as if he's saying, you whitewashed tomb." You preach a good gospel, you look clean, but on the inside, that's not gospel. You hypocrite. You yourself preach a gospel of grace, and yet you cower under social pressure. The reality is, that every Sunday, churches are full of people who mentally affirm, associate with Jesus, call themselves Christian, listen to and teach the Bible even, but inside is nothing but death and decay. We have to sit with that. We have to wrestle with that. It's not even just the, the pews, it's the pulpits also. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe there are too many practitioners in the church who are not actual believers. This is hypocrisy. It's exactly what the Galatians were dealing with. The implication, I believe, from this, that we should take from this, is that it should be confronted biblically. We should actually confront this. It's not legalism. It's not legalistic for you to confront sin and hypocrisy in your brother. In fact, you should. You should do it in love. You should do it in truth and grace. But we should call each other on this stuff. This is what we see. This is why it's a beautiful picture. You have the Apostle Paul calling out the Apostle Peter. No, that's not right. You need to fix that. Deal with that. Galatians reminds us, I think, that we all drift and we, we waffle between legalism and hypocrisy. We're all prone to go both sides of that coin. And the gospel confronts both sides there. And it brings us back to a healthy center. It brings us back to Jesus. 
On one hand, we think that by doing good, we can earn God's favor. And on the other, we claim to have the gospel of grace, but we live just like the rest of the world. So the question is, how, how do we do this? Where do we, where do we go from here? I think that's where Paul goes next in the text. In the remainder of chapter 2, Paul describes what it looks like to have that balance, right belief with right behavior, together. How do you bring those two things together? How, how then shall we live? What does that look like? And for Paul, it always comes back to one word, faith, by faith alone, by faith alone. Everything revolves around faith, not faith plus anything, simple, true faith. The question we have to answer, what then is faith? What is faith? It's one of those words that we use a lot in the church. It's very common inside the church, maybe not so common outside. But what exactly is it? If I'm saying that everything for Paul, and therefore we're implying for us, comes back to faith, what is it? We better know what it is. The author of Hebrews defines faith like this. We all know this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But that's sometimes not super helpful as a definition. The Greek word for faith is this word pistis. And it carries much more than just a mental agreement. It's more than just like a, an acknowledgement of historic fact. It means complete trust, reliability, fidelity, commitment. Allegiance. The implication is that to put your faith in Christ is much more than just belief that He existed or that He really did die on the cross. Those things are necessary. You have to believe that that happened. But true faith has more to do with allegiance, with trust. Think faithfulness to your spouse. And what that carries. Or think about when you watch a movie and you're like, that movie was faithful to the book. That's more of what the word faith carries to it. Allegiance. So in verse 15 and 16 of Galatians 2, Paul reminds Peter that they also, being Jews, did not find salvation through the law. They found it by faith in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say that if righteousness, which is another one of those churchy words that we use here, but maybe not elsewhere. Righteousness, which means essentially right standing with God, comes through the law. If it comes through the law, then according to Paul, Christ's death was for nothing. Clearly, that's not the case. So Paul says that if you go back to living like the law saved you after being saved by faith, that's like rebuilding the system that you tore down.
Again, who are you to call unclean what God has called clean? If God accepts the Gentiles, then so should you, Peter. We should probably also define another word that's used repeatedly in this passage tonight. It's the word justified. Four times in verse 16 and 17, that word justified is used. It's clearly a key word, and it's tied to, it's, its definition's tied to that word righteousness. Martin Luther claimed that justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. He said that the, it's the hinge, that justification is the hinge upon which everything turns. I know sometimes Luther is a little extreme. It's like, calm down, buddy. But uh, he's exactly right. I think he's in agreement here with Paul. The working definition of justification would be this. It's the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the gracious act of God, not of you, not of me. It's the act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is a declaration. You have to think of a judge declaring his judgment. It's an act that happens. It's not a process by which we become more justified tomorrow than we are today. Justification is a declaration. It's where a holy and perfect, upright, almighty God makes a declaration over you that you, a sinner, are justified. You are right before him. And you are granted access into his presence. You can receive his pleasure. Think for a second about Paul, the author of this book. In Philippians, he tells a bit of his testimony. He says, if anybody... We're going to jump here. Philippians 3, I'm going to start halfway through verse 4. If anybody thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is, he's spent his entire life in pursuit of, of righteous living. His entire life has been to obey the law. He was trying with everything in him to be righteous, to stand before God as righteous. He was zealous to keep God's command, so much so even to the point of persecuting and murdering those who he felt were leading people astray. But then something happened on that road to Damascus. Paul met Christ. And at once, in a moment, he realized something crucial. He wasn't good. He wasn't righteous. 
He realized that his zeal wasn't good enough. His pursuit wasn't good enough. His effort would never work. Philippians 3, 7 says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the gospel. The holy judge of the universe takes a sinner who is in willful rebellion, deserves only a guilty verdict, and declares not guilty. And if you are in Christ, because of justification, because of what God has done, you are at peace with God. You are righteous. And how does that happen? Going back to Paul. Paul says it over and over again, by faith alone. Justification comes only by faith in Christ the Messiah, in Jesus the Messiah. God the judge takes the righteous Christ, who's our mediator, and he credits to our account when we place our trust and allegiance in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. He gives it to us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Luther said that it's the doctrine that the church swings on. This is it right here. It's important that we get this down. The gospel is good news. It's good news of which, it's the news of which, of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross of Calvary and by which everything has changed. Jesus did something on the cross that changed everything. The gospel is more than just good news about your eternal position, though. This is where Paul's getting. It's more than just good news about where you get to go when you die. It's more than just your ticket to heaven. It's good news, and it has massive implications for the here and now. The rest of our passage makes this abundantly clear. We are not just justified by faith. We also are to live by faith. There's no room in Paul, there's no room in the New Testament for a gospel that looks like praying a prayer, supposedly trusting in Jesus, and then going on about your life like nothing changed. That's not the gospel. There's no room for that in the New Testament. Faith and grace is more than just receiving salvation. It's also an empowerment. It's an empowerment and a swearing of allegiance, so to speak, to live out the gospel, to practice the way of Jesus. We live every day, every moment, every breath that we take is by faith. Look at verse 20. This is a good one to memorize. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 19, Paul's dying to the law. In verse 20, he's living by faith. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. You guys, that, that's not the, the normal take we hear, but that's the reality, is that the outworking of the gospel, if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, then we have been crucified with him on the cross. And now our life must be different. There must be a marked impact on our life. It must be marked by total allegiance to him. You can't work for your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. And that Paul's very clear. You can't earn your salvation. But this week, as I've been meditating on this passage, specifically verse 20, I've been thinking about, been thinking about Jesus' call to take up our cross and to follow him. Jesus called Peter to take up his cross and to follow him. Peter, much later after this confrontation with Paul, he would write this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, specifically suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. Follow his steps. I can't help but think that Peter is possibly reflecting on Paul telling him that he has gotten out of step. He has gotten out of step with Christ. He is not following the footsteps of Christ. He is not taking up his cross and following him. He's out of step. He's out of line. So Peter says Christ has laid an example so that we might follow his steps. That's the way of Jesus. The Christian life is to follow the footsteps of our master who walked willfully to that cross to lay down his life for you and I. We're to take up our cross. We're to die in him. And then to keep our lives in step with him, choosing the way of the cross continually. Our heart of stone is crushed and pride is shattered by the gospel. All of our life is surrendered to the will of the Father. Again, how? How does that happen? I think partly this is hard because we think that we owe God something. When we think of the gospel, we think we have to pay Jesus back somehow. You guys, we, we can't. I'm guilty of this too. I mean, the, the thinking goes like this. If you did that for me, Jesus, I will give you everything. I will do this. I will do X, Y, and Z. But the, the thing is, Jesus accomplished once and for all on the cross. 
but he never stopped working for you. He's still working for you and through you. He's still at work. You can't pay him back because he's still paying you. He's still giving to you. He's still serving in you and through you. You could never possibly pay him back. So stop trying. He's alive inside of us. The Christian life we live is not so much about you living for Christ. It's about trusting Christ to live through you. It's about surrendering and allowing Jesus and the Holy Spirit to work through you. George Mueller described it like this. He said that there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world, to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and sister. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That's the key to the Christian life, to the life of discipleship. Faith in Christ, not just the Christ of history that hung on a tree, but Christ who lives in you and is working through you. Faith in a Christ that will one day return and rule and reign physically on the earth. The whole Christ. Is he our sustenance and our strength? Or do we look to other things to find that satisfaction? Do we find that elsewhere? Is he our joy, our love, and our peace? Is he our satisfaction, or do we look to money and houses and cars and things to fill that? Is he our all in all? Have we been crucified with Christ to the point where it's no longer I who live? I am dead. It's Christ who lives in me. So let go of everything that you're clinging to. Let's allow Jesus to live through us and surrender fully with our allegiance, our faith, firmly planted in Jesus. Amen? I'm going to pray and the worship team can come back up. Father, I thank you.